and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week, we're talking to Savannah Cade about book research, the fun kind, though, we promise. Savannah wrote her first romance at age eight. Even then, it was clear she was looking for a story about a breakthrough. Though that particular book shall never again see the light of day, and please don't ask, it set the stage for everything after. Savannah writes steamy series in contemporary romance, paranormal romance, and romantic suspense, and is a Maggie Award winner. There are romances you read when you want the fantasy, romances you read when you want to escape. Her books are what you read when you want to believe. Savannah is one of my favorite authors and I was super excited to sit down and chat with her about her research process because it is insane in the very best of ways. And like I said, it's fun research. I don't want you to think it's boring old piles of books stuck in a dusty library research. You're going to want to listen and you're going to enjoy it. Exactly, because Savannah has different kinds of research and the fun kind is the stuff that she recommends doing. But I'm going to hazard a guess and say most writers aren't doing the fun kind of research. They're doing the boring stuff. We all have to do it sometimes, right? Well, yeah, that's true. But also maybe actually the fun kind of research is harder to get get over that first step but then more fun and potentially get you better results. Of course. A big thank you to all our listeners who donate over on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. As a patron, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into these episodes to inspire and motivate you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. Since today we are talking all about book research, I thought our question could be, what has been your favorite thing that you have researched so far for your books? For me, it is just weird magic and lore and folklore and stuff. So I don't want to, well, I'm sure everyone wants to have a unique magic system, but I wanted to have one that felt like it could be real. Um... So I'm going through um, so a couple of like urban fantasy series at the moment, and maybe there's bits of that in there. I'm reading a book about black magic, there's bits of that in there. I'm reading books about um, British folklore, there's even a little bit of that in there, and it just it feels uh, it's still working out some kinks, I think, but it feels interesting and it feels believable, um, as far as I can tell. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm sure it will. And I think based on some of the stuff you've been reading that I know about anyway, it's definitely going to make for a really interesting, fun magic system along with the characters that you've come up with as well. Hopefully. I think so. But, you know, I've been wrong before. (laughs) That's why you've got me. (laughs) What has been your favourite thing to research? Mine, to nobody's surprise, has been ancient Egypt. Uh, Not just the mummies, not just the mummies, although that's how I got into it. I will admit that I started with mummies and that was the main thing I needed to research for afterlife calls. But then just in general, researching ancient Egypt and all the stuff I've learned about like what they ate and what they believed and the fact that actually it was quite a feminist society compared to other societies at the time. And the weird stories about like 
I can't say it, Hatshepsut, I think I said that right, and how she dressed as a man because she wanted to be in charge. And people just accepted that she dressed as a man sometimes and sometimes she was a woman. They didn't care. She was in charge. And so there's just some really cool stories about it, but also the fact that there are still a lot of gaps that we don't know that really fascinates me for some reason. I don't know why, but it does. I I guess... From my <laughs> historian point of view, um, I would say uh, I'll promise to never say that again as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do have a degree in history. You're sort of allowed to say it. you just don't use that degree very much. I um, <laughs> the things we don't write down, like even now, the things we don't write down are the things that are so normal it doesn't seem worth writing down. So if there's something about history that we don't know, perhaps it seemed so boring to them that they didn't note note down but in actual fact to us it would seem so so much more interesting than they realized yeah like mummification there's only one or two things that actually talk you through the process of mummification yet loads and loads of rich people were mummified and a lot of people don't realize that that was only for the elite you know, the everyday people, most of them weren't mummified, but they did have the most insane wigs made that they were buried in. And because those wigs were protected with beeswax and something else, their hair is perfectly intact thousands of years later with like really intricate braids and plaits and all sorts, just because of this like essentially hair wax that they put on. That's pretty cool. I I imagine though, even when they were doing it, they weren't picturing us a few thousand years later admiring it. And that still that amuses me. That kind of perspective shift just amuses me sometimes. Yeah, it does me. Like they definitely weren't because the, the idea was that they survive in the afterlife and they've got these things to help them and protect them and stuff. And in a way, they have survived in the afterlife because a part of them is still here four thousand years later, just not necessarily in the way that they necessarily envisaged. Mm, it depends how you classify afterlife then, I guess. Precisely. That might, be, that might be a slightly too big a topic for this episode. Yeah, I think it might be. And also too philosophical for the time of night we're recording this. <laughs> Probably also a good shout. One of the, my favourite places to research ancient Egypt was a site called Wondrium, which I am a massive fan of and we are also affiliates of. Wondrium is where I learned about ancient Egypt. It's where I started in kind of stopped studying hieroglyphs but I stopped studying hieroglyphs because I switched to studying nutrition and Spanish instead and they felt slightly more useful in the modern world than hieroglyphs considering there's like three hieroglyphs in 17 of my books so far that you know nutrition just felt a bit more beneficial you know I disagree but you know whatever (laughs) if you would like to check out Wondrium and learn about everything from ancient Egypt to uh, drawing. I don't know why I'm fiddling with this pencil. If you're watching on YouTube, it's, yeah, anyway, I'm like a small child tonight and just like can't sit still. Um, Or if you want to learn about nutrition or learn a new language or a form of art or just get your teeth into a documentary for an hour, definitely check out Wondrium. You can get a 14-day free trial with our link and save 25% off a monthly plan or 35% off your yearly plan. To find out more, visit writerscookbook.com forward slash Wondrium. And that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. Writerscookbook.com forward slash Wondrium. And we'll put the link in the notes below as well, just in case. With me today on The Writer's Mindset is Savannah Cade. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. 
So for our lovely listeners who haven't heard me rave about your books, can you just tell them a little bit about yourself? I'm a writer from when I was eight years old. I'm that writer. Um, and I, I write suspense. Like if you're looking behind me, you can see I've got two pen names up here. And I wrote romance in between the suspense. I needed it. Um, and then I published my first one in 2016. I actually already had like four or five of them banked by that time because I was just writing them anyway. That's how I, I got on the road to where you found my books. <laughs> one thing I've noticed in your books is just like how much research you seem to do. That's something that just really stood out to me. There was so much depth about these different topics. So I wanted to pick your brains a little bit today about your research process. So yeah. let's go like right back to basics. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what the actual kind of theme or topic that you're going to cover in your book actually is? I have so many stories in my head. I'm also that writer. Um, <laughs> I'm the person who listens to NPR in my car too. You may have already figured that out. Um, but once I have them, I, I get characters, I get random storylines, and the, I think of them like little snowballs rolling around in my head until they get big enough to be a story. So by that point, like the characters and the theme, they've kind of run into each other. And so I'm not, I don't think I'm like actively picking a theme kind of the way we don't actively make a lot of decisions. So I'm sure it's in there, but I'm also a firm believer. Like I I listen to people teaching and they're like, this is plot and this is character. And I'm a firm believer that they have to be much more intertwined because the character's actions drive the plot. So they have to be appropriate and I do read like some suspense and even romance where the characters' actions don't drive the plot. And I'm I'm not a fan of those. I feel like they're not like not well enough constructed. Yeah, I totally so. agree with that. And that's something that I think about when I'm writing my stories and when mm-hmm. we teach writing at the writer's mindset and the writer's cookbook as well. Like if your characters aren't making an impact on the plot, then it just feels like they're lacking some kind of agency or control over their own life. And no one has that little control over their own life. They just sometimes don't want that control. (laughs) Yeah. And and I get that, like, and we've all had it in our real lives. Things happen to us, you know, things that we didn't expect and weren't prepared for, but we're each going to react to it differently. And that's, that changes the outcome. So I think we have to wind those two together. And I think when we do wind those two together, like the themes really come in. You know, what is this character struggling with? What do they have to overcome? And I do try to like take all of the craft that I have, you know, I have done that. I had done the craft classes and all of it and I love it, but I try to take that and say like, okay, well, how does this work with that? And so there is an overlay layer that's actually conscious of that, but the initial underlying theme of it and the characters, they've all kind of rolled together. And sometimes I have a couple and sometimes I just have like, I just have her and I'm like, well, she can sit in my head until she meets somebody. I have characters like that. I've got an mm-hmm. old lady detective called Agnes that has been in my head for like six years. Right. And I kind of vaguely know she's going to research, not research, investigate her daughter's mm-hmm. murder. But that's uh-huh. all I can tell you. Right. That and she was fired for being grumpy. Oh, I like that. Yeah. She's a great yeah. character. She has no story. So she's just sitting Yeah, there. she's all there. <laughs> so she'll just hang out until the right story comes on. You're like, oh. That's yeah. Agnes's story. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why would you say research is an important part of that writing and plotting and character creation process? I think the research actually triggers the formation of the snowballs. 
So I have lots of things, like I have things I want to do and I go and do the research. So my latest romantic suspense series is a fire station in Nebraska. And all of that was meticulously researched. And what's fun is like, I'll research some of it for suspense and some of it for romance. And then it crosses over. It's like, oh, so it's just there. So my son and I took a trip to Nebraska for three days um, a handful of years ago. And I was like, I need to know what's here. Like, where can I put my fictional town? You know, what does it look like? What's nearby? And drive around. What does it smell like? Oh my God, the mosquitoes are huge in Nebraska. Really? Right? And that goes in the book. Yeah, I didn't know that. We didn't know until we got there. You know, I had no idea that there was a very large Hispanic population in Nebraska. And Nebraska encouraged immigration into the state to bring in workers. And they were where other states were like, no, they were very open. I didn't know that until we got there and we're reading about the local area and talking to people. And so I think that I think you honestly don't have to be an expert on things. But if you can go in and find those little nuggets that the experts recognize and the novices see and go, oh, that's you know, it's detailed, it's rich. And you don't have to put a 12-page info dump in, but you put those little nuggets in and it really, it brings the story to life and it makes it really true to form. And so I rode along with a fire station for a week. I researched with my local station and that, I mean, that changed. So I wrote a suspense novel and I was a firefighter and in my original snowball, he was a Dallas firefighter with urban search and rescue. And the fire station I got to ride along with was in South Carolina. And the whole the whole book changed, but it was wonderful. So the, the fundamentals of the plot stayed basically the same, but the whole setting changed. And I had met all these firefighters. And I think when I can start with that, it's, it's so rich and it's so appropriate. And I, I just think there's so much real life that we don't have to invent too much to write really good fiction. There's really good people out there that can be great fictional characters. And there's great stuff that's happening that makes great fictional stories. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, When I start researching stuff, it definitely turns into a bit of a rabbit hole. I'm Mm -hmm. still on an ancient Egypt rabbit Mm -hmm. hole at the moment. That's my current (laughs) obsession. That Uh and weird Victorian beauty trends. Like... They used to put egg yolk in their hair. And I'm sorry, I can't do raw egg on it. No, no it's just too gross. It Literally, their hair didn't move after. She didn't move. Yeah. Oh, so it was like your, it was Victorian hairspray? They, they used it as like a shampoo. And I think uh-huh. like a deep, I wouldn't say conditioning treatment because it's not going to condition yeah. your hair. But they... Well, it was so hard to wash out. The odds of actually yeah. getting it all out, considering yeah. they didn't have running water, they'd usually do it in like a bucket. Oh, right. Thinking about it, it's gross. I'm sorry for any vegans. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. I, <laughs> I would not have survived any historical period. No, neither would I. No. I'm too lazy no. for stars. <laughs> I am thoroughly modern. I know. Speaking of laziness, do you think <laughs> that's why some writers don't like research or underestimate it or don't do enough? I think it's possible. I think there's a lot of push these days to get books to market. And I'll bet that undercuts writers who would have done more research. And it also, I credit a lot of it to the fact that I am just, I'm that person that the introverts are like, can you just bring it down a little, you know? And that helps. Like when I look at research, I look at it in four different levels. There's action research. That's like going out and riding along with the fire department. And I always prefer like the deepest level of research that I can get. You know, I can't, go walk around Victorian England for three days. It's just not possible. Although if I was writing about it, I would try. 
And then the next level is personal research. And it took me a while to figure out, like, if you ask somebody, like, tell me about this job, they can't tell you. They don't want to tell you. They feel really put on the spot. But the questions that I found that are really good are what was your best day on the job and what was your worst day on the job? Because they can tell you those stories and they're good stories and they're fun things that happen. They tell you like, oh, this is the kind of thing that happens on this job. And they also tell you what that person values. You know, I noticed that a lot. Like you can't just take any character and stick them in a fire station. I'm never going to be a firefighter. It's just not going to happen. It's not in me. Nope. So I need to write characters that fit that. And I found that that personal level of research was really good. And then you got your internet and your books, you know, and I honestly think a lot of internet is well above books because it's, you know, it's video. Um, I've had autistic characters and I watch, I mean, I have friends who helped and sensitivity readers, but watching a lot of videos from a bunch of different people was like, okay, that's where that falls. And that helps. And a lot of them actually put the videos up to help writers, which was wonderful. So I think a lot of that's out there, but you're right. It's a rabbit hole. And I think a lot of people, it may not be laziness. It may just be that need to like cut it off. And one advantage that I've had is that I don't co-write with my sister, but she's my business manager. So like I've never uploaded a book, no idea what she could be skimming taxes for all I know, no idea what they look like, (laughs) but she's always like, this is your hard start date for writing. And that's been really handy about keeping me out of that, you know, that research rabbit hole is so easy to get. I get into it, but I have a hard stop when I've got to crawl back out and actually start writing something. So I think having someone on the other end of the line, honestly, that's the only thing that got me through my first book. If she would get a chapter every couple of days and if she didn't get her chapter, she would send me nasty emails and texts. Something only someone who really loves you could get away with. Oh yeah. I was, I was in a writer's meeting. It was probably like my fourth or fifth book. And they were like, she does not. And I was like, Here's the last, here's the last text she sent me. And it literally said, where's my chapter hoe bag? (laughs) They passed the phone around the whole meeting because everybody's like, no, I have to see this. I'm like, it's right there. I'm late. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. It's one way to keep you motivated. It really does. And I think it helps too having somebody who's partway through the book. Like if you don't write the next chapter, you've really like, that's awful. You've really let this person down. Yeah. When I was working on the first version of my first book, I used to post it online and I would get forum readers like, where's the next chapter? Where's the next chapter? I'm like, I haven't written it yet. And they're like, well, write it then. There are no excuses to them. It keeps you going. Yeah. It does. Accountability goes a long way, I think. And it's underestimated. It really is. It really is. So you talked about the different types of research. Do you think there's a particular time that's the best time to do each stage? Or is it better to do it before you start or as you're going even? What do you think, what works best for you? I'm much more of a plotter and I'm confident that that helps get that research out up front. That, you know, I know I have this book coming up. I'm trying to do my research a year or more in advance right now because you know, go, I live in Nashville. So going to Nebraska was a trip and we had to plan it. And, you know, um, my son came along with me for fun, but it's like, okay, when is, when are both of us available? When can we get an Airbnb and and that kind of thing. So having that was really handy. Plus doing it really far in advance 
allows the research to really alter the story. I'm not just getting in and getting like a few details. I'm going like, okay, this is where it is. And how does that play into this? And so, you know, I did that for one book under one pen name and I'm using it. I also did it for like this whole series that I'm writing as a romance writer and combining the research that I did with firefighters. So the handiness of having two pen names and not having readers come back and be like, is that that same thing you did? I'm like, I'm just going to use it as much as I can. Why not? When have you taken the time to do that research? (laughs) Yeah, I put a lot of effort into it. So I think it's, it's helpful for that. I know when I was getting started though, like it took me eight months to find a fire station that would let me ride along. Wow. Way longer than I thought. And so I was doing other things in between, but that really pushed that book back. And it wasn't, it wasn't how I expected it to go. So there's a definite downside. Like if you've got a deadline, I don't know that you have the luxury to do that. Um, and there's certainly absolutely research you have to do as you go, you know, and I think a lot of that, I like doing the human research and the active research well beforehand, because I think they have the most influence, but I'm constantly like, as even I'm on a second draft edit, um, and I'm, I look, I had to go like, well, what does this look like? Show me a video of them using this. You know, I had, I had them in a waterway in Florida, but it's been so long since I was there. I was like, well, what does it look like now? And so you can go and find videos on that. I think a lot of that is little, but I think for a lot of people too, you just kind of kind of set the timer and be like, I've got 15 minutes to get a descriptor for, for this waterway. It's not the whole book. I can't lose a week. But it's easy to accidentally. It's easy to, yeah. Yeah, but you know, phone timer is like, is a good, good friend. It is definitely. When you go and do these, this more active research then and you're reaching out to people like the fire stations in Nebraska Mm -hmm. and saying hey can I come and hang out what's your approach for that because I know a lot of writers as you've said are introverts Mm -hmm. and the thought of just reaching out to total strangers and saying can I come join you is a little bit terrifying I mean just the thought of it for me my brain is like exploding at the thought of it so what's your approach and what would your advice be for someone who'd like to do that Mm -hmm. but is terrified of the concept Two things. I may be extroverted, but I'm also terrified of it. I just, I've kind of gotten this attitude of like, I can be terrified for a short while and do it and then it will be over. Or I can be terrified for a long while because I didn't do it. And I do, I have cold call places. I don't think that works all that well. And especially if you're looking for anything where you need to get into an office or something, it's hard. People don't want to let you in. I drove five hours to get a fire, a police station I could ride along with because I've done that as well. I've actually ridden with four different police stations now. None of them any closer than three hours to my home because wow. they're so closed. And I think if you call and it doesn't work, going and knocking on doors is a better bet. Um, but honestly, I've only had really good luck with that once. And that was my local fire station is a volunteer station and they are amazing. But so many places are just like, no, we don't do that. Um, one place told me I could absolutely do a ride along if I was a student getting a particular degree, taking a particular class. So I was like, yeah, I'm not getting a whole degree (laughs) to come ride with you for a day. But what I've actually found works really well and is probably just easier for the terror is we actually don't know who we know. And so just start talking to your friends and the people you know, post online. I need to do a a ride along with this. Who knows this? The fire station that I rode with for a week, one of my coworkers at the time, I was just like, hey, does anybody, like I'm struggling. I've knocked on all the local doors. You know, I'm not going to drive three hours to knock on somebody's door to get rejected. You know, and she said, hold on. 
the police chief lives in my building. Let me see. And she asked the police chief and he asked the fire chief. And the next thing I knew, like it took eight months to get to her. And it took me eight months of knocking on doors. It could have been much faster if I'd reached out to my friends up front. So I learned, I learned a lot researching how to research. So yeah, she set it up. And within a couple of days, I had an invite. And I was just like, great, when do I have a free week? And I stayed overnight with her a couple of nights, but I got to live in the fire station. I rode with every shift. They did extra trainings for me. They were like so excited. Um, and then the police ride-alongs that I've gotten, I've gotten because I've known people. I have not had any success knocking on doors or cold calling anyone for that. So Absolutely. Like I didn't know, but a lot of people, and especially like readers, if you're already a published author and you have that, your readers want to help you. And one of my readers put me in the police station right near his home. That's so that cool. Wonderful. But, yeah. It is yeah. a case of like, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you if yeah. you just ask. Yeah. And I'm surprised how many don't want credit in the book. They're like, do not put me in here. Really? Yeah. Well, well, I will also say I've talked to bomb experts and I got talked through how to get somebody who is living under an alias into a position as a police officer, how to pass that background check illegally. Wow. And he was like, you cannot, but he ran one of the largest states background systems. So he, he taught me through, like, if you want to get past me, you know, here's what we're not checking. Here's what you would need. Yeah. I'm not surprised he didn't want to be in the acknowledgement. No, right? The bomb guy didn't either. Um, another really good way to get people is to go to conferences. And so a lot of writing conferences are craft writing conferences, but there's a good handful of writing conferences out there that are action research conferences. So I've done Writers Police Academy. I've done Authors SWAT Academy. Actually, ta I taught at SWAT Academy and I've actually helped run Authors Combat Academy. So those were three, four day conferences where you're talking to police officers, forensic scientists, um, military experts, you know, crime scene investigators. And that's the kind of thing, like, I get it's not like an office. If you wanted to know, like, about training horses, there's not that many writers conferences for training horses that I can recommend. They might exist, but you don't know who you don't know to the point where I decided to write a book where they find a schematic when they're read, um, they've got an old plantation and they're restoring it. And they find a schematic in the walls. I hated history in school. I don't know how to do this. I don't know why I decided this was the book. But I start asking around one of my best friend's fathers who works for a chain restaurant. So that's how I knew him. It turns out he actually works for the owners of a handful of the local chain because they buy plantations and restore them for education. And they hired him as a restorer. And he only works for the restaurant when he's not restoring buildings for them. And I loved him. He was like, oh, I'm probably the top restoration knowledge guy, you know, in the Southern States. And I'm like, so like in the world, like there's nowhere else we find this kind of building, but thanks for downplaying. And I got tours. I got tours and I got recording. He handed me books. So there's, there's really a lot you can do. And you probably know a lot more people than you know, you know. And so that's the easier way to do it. If you're a writer and you've got a reader's Facebook group, I would start there. Like, hey, I'm really trying to do this. Does anybody know somebody who's willing to give me a tour or talk to me on the phone? You know, be clear about what you're looking for. Yeah, that's something right. I've noticed when like working with beta readers or mm -hmm. interviewing people or like say doing research is be mm -hmm. really specific because if you're mm -hmm. vague, then mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to help you as much. You need to know what you want to get out of that other person first. Right. 
And I wanted to go and be in the fire station. So I was like, yeah, I'm looking for someplace that's going to let me ride along. And so I got to interview them while I was there, which is really handy. <laughs> but that's so cool. Yeah. But some of it's just on the phone. And if you're at, if you need some of those things and you're at those conferences, most of the people teaching the classes are not writers. You know, I got, I got taught how to run guns by a secret service agent. And most of them will hand you their cards at the end and say, you know, we're here to help writers. If you, you know, if you need anything, call us. So then you've got a contact of your own already. So Right here under my right hand in this drawer is a stack of cards that I have saved from all those conferences. And I have called some of those people. And it's that's terrifying too, especially if it's been a couple of years. But uh, you just call and go like, I was at such and such conference on this year and you were my teacher and you said we could call you. So this is, you know, I don't say this is kind of your fault, but I'm sure I have that tone in my voice. I think a lot of them, if they come and teach at these conferences, they either have a book for authors or they do some sort of consultancy anyway. Mm -hmm. So they want you to reach out. Exactly. Yeah. And one of them that I saw at one conference, I stayed in touch with him. And the next thing I know, he's running a whole three-day weekend. So, you know, if you want to learn how to interrogate suspects, he's your guy. (laughs) (laughs) When you've done all that research, then how does it actually inform your plotting process and how in-depth do you do it? Like we've interviewed some people and they Mm -hmm. write like 30, 50, 80,000 word outlines before they've Mm -hmm. even actually started to write it how how much depth do you put into yours before you actually start creating the book itself that's a rough question some of them are really in depth and some are less in depth and it's it varies Uh, one of my books i wrote from a dream i had in 10th grade so it took probably 20 years to get the book written but it really was you know and it it changed i think i do more on like how do i want to tell it and less on what the plotting is because the plotting really came in that snowball initially so usually before i can sit down and write i always know what the end of the book is and i always know what the beginning of the book is and i always know key spots in the middle whether i know more detail around it remains to be seen and i get the same surprises as every author i had man i had a character just turn on me two-thirds of the way through the book and i was like i had no idea she was on the other side of this and suddenly she was and going back and reading the earlier draft i was like oh yeah i really seeded that and i had no idea i was doing it but i don't i don't write any of my outlines everything is in my head so my sister is my business manager and she's got me insured in case i go into a coma or something because she's really scared i'm not surprised if you're carrying it around all the time i'd just forget stuff if i did that no and i I had a I had a moment where I had I'd written this very long suspense novel. I was like, I dropped a clue in every chapter and I held all of those in my head. It's like, how did I do that? And I'm like, I don't know, but they're in there. Aside from a few three-quarter page things that I wrote down just to have sometimes just some kind of marker of like, this is my series, this is what I've named it, these are the characters, and I'll send it to WGA or register it in some way so it can't be stolen. But other than that, there's there's nothing written down. Wow. So I'm aware that's not much help for most people. (laughs) But it shows that there's different ways of doing things. And that's what we like to include on this podcast. You know, I Mm -hmm. used to do kind of like a bullet pointed plan before I started. And then Mm -hmm. as I started to write things that got more complicated and confusing, I realized I needed that much more depth because then I'm separating out more of the plotting process and the kind of problem solving that comes with when you're doing quite complicated plots with the actual writing. And it Mm -hmm. meant that when I sat down to write first thing in the morning, I wasn't um, thinking about, oh, how do I do this, et cetera, because I'd already written it. But then I wouldn't have been able to do that kind of process five years ago because the thought of planning anything just made my brain explode. 
But because I didn't do it in the earlier days, that did make the spin-off series that I'm writing more complicated. So it's just finding things that work for you. And sometimes that process yeah. changes. It's going to change. And I think a lot of it changes because you have something that you think works and then you find something else and you're like, wow, this helps that, or this works even better. And so it definitely evolves. And I think we have to be prepared for it. And it's also an art. Nobody else's process is going to work for you the exact same way it does for them. So you absolutely, absolutely should be stealing from other people by all means, don't reinvent any wheels. But you know, if you're done and you've got this old like card that looks like the third grade drawing you did of a car and all four wheels are different. If it works for you, then it's the right car for you. Is your process different depending on what genre you're writing or is it, it is different depending on every book or it's, it's different in like how much active research does it need, but it's really, it's not that different genre for genre. Um, I love writing. I love writing both suspense and romance, but romance has, I think romance is the only genre where you know the ending of the book based on the aisle you're standing in, in the bookstore. That's a huge challenge to write a new novel that has basically the same ending as every other novel in the genre. And there's no other genre that I know of that has that kind of constriction to it. And I think people write romance off before it. And I would argue it's almost more complicated because of that. And then you get the suspense. And I found in both cases, if I'm writing them both back to back, I can do two back to back, but I can't really do three because I'll start getting confused. <laughs> I start like, is this the same love scene I put in that last? Like, are my readers going to recognize that this is all, you know, or wasn't that keyhole bullet shape on the back of the skull the big clue in the last book? So I have to alternate. But other than that, the process is really the same. What are some of your go-to research resources? Do you have any like people or websites that you always frequent when you're kind of going down a particular path? I actually have a really, really good reader groups and I go to them first. I, I'll go in and say like, look, what's this thing? It's, this isn't necessarily like the same kind, but I think it's a really good example. I had asked them, is it another thing coming or another think coming? Now, I think it's important to understand that my suspense readers, I'm, I'm a scientist. I have three science degrees. So my suspense is very science-y oriented. And a lot of my romance heroines are scientists. They're, you know, they're they're not always formally educated, but they're educated. Um, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of trade schools and hands-on education as well. And so my heroines always fall into that. So I find myself like asking my readers a lot of things and my readers are nerdy. Interestingly enough, my romance readers are far more likely to have college degrees than my suspense readers, but they, they came back and they cited references and there was, there was this massive war on my page about whether it's another thing coming or another think coming. And they pulled back references back within like hundreds of years ago, within a couple of years of each other. And I was just like, I'm never writing that phrase again. Somebody's going to be mad. But I found it's really good going to the groups because if you go to one person, you get one person's perspective, but you go to the group and you get, you can usually find a couple people who have it. So you can say, okay, here's the things in common. And here's the things that like, I don't want to say like, this is how it works because it's specific to this particular situation. And I found that was really, really helpful. I do find like, if, if possible, I want to get to more than one place, more than one person, because I don't want to create one person's story. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you can get a more well-rounded picture then as well if you're getting mm-hmm. multiple points of view, multiple mm-hmm. studies maybe, yeah. um, all these different things rather than just focusing on that one thing and because that kind of agrees with what you're already thinking, that's what you decide mm-hmm. is like yeah. the answer. And that can be problematic. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm sure there's stuff that goes right by me because I don't know what I don't know. But when I read something and I'm like, that is not how that works. Like you could have Googled that. It really irritates me as a reader. And I know not everybody's that way. So you don't have to Google it. But my group of readers is is heavy on that. And I as a writer am too. So I think that's such a cool thing. Like, oh, your readers are just coming in with all these studies and stuff that they're citing. I, I love it too. And even if it's just like, actually, I work in a cube in an office, this is what it's like. And if you get multiple ones and you get the other one going, yeah, I had that too. Or, oh, they start conversations with each other. And that's as fascinating as anything else. You know, what did you do with this? One thing I think is really important about research, though, is grabbing lingo that like, how do the firefighters talk? What's the phrasing they're using? The people in the office cubes, they call them different things than I would because I never worked in a cube really, except for one summer. So that I found was, that's really a great thing where you can pull something kind of small out. You don't have to go completely down the rabbit hole, but if you can find that phrasing, then you can, you can get in and write it well. I think that phrasing is one of the things that can really bring something to life. Mm -hmm. Like I leaned away from writing in like very Midland dialect when I was particularly working on my Hollywood gossip series because they're American and when I started writing my third series which is set in my hometown I thought you know what I am just going to lean into all this slang that I use on a daily basis and I feel like the actual world is much stronger because of that and I've Mm -hmm. not had anyone yet say what does Marty mean because I use it all the time anyway and you can work it out from the context of it like she's a Marty teenager she's just in a mood that's all Uh yeah and that and especially when it's not something you already know getting in and getting that it's it's you're right because you know it and you can lean into it and it really enriches the story but you can achieve most of that without having lived there yeah it's just about tapping into the right people and looking mm-hmm. in the right place and I guess yeah. the thing is like I've noticed a lot of writers when they have this really great idea and don't get me wrong I used to do this they're like mm-hmm. oh, I've got this idea and I've got to write it and then they just throw it onto the page and then they go wait there's a gap here and this doesn't mm-hmm. make sense and that's missing. And then they're like, I've got so much to do. Mm-hmm. And instead of like doing the research or thinking that what they're missing is research, they mm-hmm. suddenly blame writer's block or they think that their story is terrible. And it could just be they need to talk to the right people. I think that's I think it's absolutely fair. And I think if you're a newer writer, the whole write what you know is so important. So this is this is my like, I guess I've been writing since I was eight. Um, and I wrote a couple of full length books when I was eight, you know, uh, but I didn't ever finish anything then. I, I absolutely have that same classic writer's problem of 180 pages into an epic fantasy. And I'm like, oh, look, a squirrel. Right. So I knew the first thing I needed to do if I really wanted to get published was finish. And that whole trying to write the perfect novel, it'll it'll kill you. And neurologically, it doesn't work. Like we can't do it. If somebody writes an essay and you want to help them improve. You need to help. You need to tell them what they can do to get the essay to be one letter grade better, not go from a failing grade to the perfect grade because it's too many things. It's too many moving parts. And even if they do it better, you can't record what you, you can't figure out which parts made it better. 
And so you can't repeat it. So I was very careful going into my first book, which is not published. And I picked a book that was not my baby. So I wrote a historical romance and it's so bad. Like there's no research in it. If they pull out their cell phones at some point in the middle of it, it's, it's possible. Like it's that bad. But my goal was just to have, to get finished, to have a beginning, a middle and an end and to have a plot that could be followed. And I did that. And that book is a blazing piece of crap that no one should read. And I'm so proud of it. And so then I wrote the second book. And in that book, I wanted to be more literary. I had wanted, I knew I could do the other things. I knew I had that down solid. And I was going to write this more literary piece and have my characters have clearly distinct personalities and different phrasing that comes out of their mouth. They're from different places. And so then the third one I wrote, I wrote to get published. And even when I wrote that, I said it in my hometown. I wrote it about scientists. And that freed me up to, to spend my brain space on how are the characters interacting? Where's the plot going? Did I leave any gaps? And I think that's really important until you have a handful of books under your belt. Because I think we do. We get these ambitious ideas and it's our book baby and we want it to be perfect. But we, we've got to have the tools first. And I don't think any reader is going to be like, oh, newbie writer said it in their hometown. They're probably just reading. It's not also their hometown. You know, unless they're your friend, they're like, oh, it's really rich and it's really, really well written. And they don't have to know that I spent all my brain space on that. Yeah, they don't care. And unless no. like they really enjoy the book, they're not going to look into the story right. behind the story anyway. No, no, not at all. And I have people who are like, oh, I went there. Like I have readers who come back and they're like, I'd never been there, but I read the book. And then I went there and I saw all the things in the book. And I was like, and I just say, thank you. You know, every once in a while I confess, I'm like, I grew up there. That's why it all works. There's so much stuff right next to us that we don't see. And if we include some of it, we're going to be golden. I didn't do anything where I invented a town until much later in my writing. Do you think it's a lot harder to invent your own town and set everything there? I don't know if it's harder, but I suspect you have to have more skill before you try it. Because if I had done that in my first book, I would have had to just spend so much time on the logistics of where did I put this street or, and I get like, you can take a real town and fictionalize it. And that's the easy way to do it. Uh, but I had, I have completely invented a couple of towns and I have, I have to do some city planning for that. And <laughs> that was, I think that was something that had I done it in my earlier books, it would have either not gone as well or it would have taken away from the other things that I did get to do well in those books. Yeah, I get that. I have vague recollections of trying to invent my own town for a fantasy book I wrote about 10 years ago. I don't remember much about it other than it being a shipping town. And I grew up in the Midlands as far away as possible as you can get from a shipping town. So right. I don't know why I did that. It's it's really hard. And it, it becomes, I mean, if it's fantasy, that's helpful because errors can be like, oh, this is just my world. But even if it's fantasy and you're inventing your own world, you need to know which directions the streets go. And depending on who your readership is, they might call you on it. I mean, I write suspense. I write romantic suspense. I got an email from a reader that said, love the book. Glocks don't have safeties. And I was so mad because I know that. And she had a conversion kit so she could put a Glock, a safety on her Glock. And I had not written it into the book. I had done all the research and I had somehow forgotten to get it into the final draft or I'd put it in and edited it out. Typical. It happens yeah. though sometimes, doesn't it? it? And it's, I think it's nice that readers 
point that out because then you can fix mm-hmm. it for the next edition. Absolutely. And then you don't get more of those emails. <laughs> no. no, but I, I think too, like, I think you cultivate a readership based on the research you do. So if you're a re- if you're a writer who doesn't like doing research, you're going to read out weed out readers. That's hard to say that really want research pieces or want to have that feeling of that really rich intensity of the book that's truthful. And you'll gather a readership where it doesn't matter as much. And those readerships definitely exist. I think the thing is, it's kind of like sticking to your genre. I get the whole like stay in your lane, don't stay in your lane and and people can make it work. I think a lot of people who aren't staying in their lane though are actually staying in a lane and the lane just isn't a genre. That, yeah, I can you know, see that. It's the style of writing or the kind of characters they write or a thread that's consistent through all those books. I'll bet good money they really do have a lane. And but I think that's a lane too. It's like, how much research are you doing? Are you writing for a well-informed reader who's going to write you an email that says, hey, Glocks, don't have safeties or not? <laughs> you know. What's been your favorite thing that you've researched out of everything you've done so far or got coming up? Oh, that's really hard. I love doing the research. And again, I'm extroverted. And, you know, especially once I have the invitation to the fire station, I will just show up on the doorstep and be like, am I wearing the right thing? I brought three other outfits in the car. Let me know. Uh, I loved being in the fire station. That was so much fun. And I stayed up all night watching deer hunting videos because that's what they watched. Uh, the police research was fascinating they put me with an officer who was on his way to becoming a training officer. So they were like, no, you're really good for him. He's going to have to train other officers. He can train a writer first. And then if he does a bad job, like you won't so hurt you're Basically his job interview. <laughs> it was. It was fantastic. But he was, he was so much fun and so into it as well. And I think that helps too, you know, making sure that you didn't get foisted off on somebody by their boss. But The most research I did is I went to graduate school and got a degree in human forensic identification. And I realized that is not fun research for most people, but I will put on my mud boots and dig in the ground for a finger bone any day. So I got, I got taught by some of the world's top researchers and we got called out on, um, on body hunts. Uh, I got, I got to go on one as a volunteer student, but I was the only forensic research expert experts supposedly at the time because they couldn't get anybody else and they were like just go do it and I was so I'm there with my textbooks like I'm doing my best y'all I think people don't realize that one of the major jobs of the forensic scientists on site is animal human (laughs) so you pull up all these bones and everybody's like look it's a femur and you have to pretty much on the spot be like don't worry about it that's a wild creature and we don't have to file a police report for it or oh my god that is a human if you misclassify it you've created all kinds of problems but we had search dogs out and the officers turned to me and they were like, okay, if we're done, you get to decide, you get to make this call. And I was so excited that I got to literally call off the dogs for that. And one of the officers made me a little picture and he put a little meme on it. It was like my first forensic dig for the police. It was cute. That's so cute. That's like admit- a lot of pressure as well for a student. Oh, it was so much pressure. It was crazy, but it was me or no one. So. I have to admit, I've de- I've developed a low bar scenario. Like the lower I can set my own bar, the happier I'll be. And so I was like, look, it's me or these officers who aren't trained. And what was fun was because I had done police ride-alongs, the the chief came up to me and he was like, Well, you tell me what to do. I'm just a I'm just a stupid officer and I don't know what to do. And I was like, 
that is not true. Do not try that on me. And he was like, okay, let's go. <laughs> so that helps having previous research in it. But I don't recommend getting a graduate degree in something as general book research. That does sound like a lot of work. Would you I wanted say that's... the degree anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. Would you say that's the hardest thing you've ever researched? Or is there something else that you really like struggled with, either because you needed to research and didn't want to, or it was just like a really challenging topic? I think the plantation restoration was the most challenging because it was so far out of my wheelhouse. And the the guy who took me around and, and does all the work blessedly handed me books beforehand. He had, I read three books before I was allowed to go walk the plantation with him, which was wonderful. It was wonderful education. The, the books he picked, I mean, and they were the right ones. I think I didn't realize when I was doing it because even in the last couple of years, we've realized a lot more and there's a lot more openness about the South history, but he, he put me on the right track. So, you know, that the history of, of what I had was well told and not glorified in any way. And I'm a reader. I'm a, I'm that nerdy student. I'm, I'm the one you cheated off of in your seventh grade algebra class probably. And so I, I really enjoy doing the research with it. So but reading those history books, I was like, I'm not a history fan. I don't like this. But because it was for the book and I knew it was that, it made it a lot easier. I really, I, I struggle to think of where the research has been difficult because I'm usually, when I'm doing it, I'm excited about the book. And I think that changes everything. Because if you'd have handed me a history book and I didn't have that book I was going to write, I'd have been like, huh, have a nice day. I have to confess, actually. I hated research and then it ended up being an accidental piece of research that informed what I wrote for my creative writing MA's dissertation. Uh -huh. I was like you, I hated history when I was at school mm -hmm. and it wasn't until, um, when would it have been? must have been about 2013, 12 now. And I don't know how or why, but my boyfriend and I started watching a World War II documentary. And my boyfriend is quite big in modern history. It was one of his best subjects at school. As I said, it bored me senseless. And because this particular documentary was about the people and how it affected them, not about the politicians, because I, I am quite into politics, but more modern politics, it just resonated with me more because it was about the Lebensborn project and the children that were kidnapped and basically raised mm -hmm. as Aryan children, even if they weren't, and all, all the records were destroyed. So a lot of them will never be able to find their birth families. And obviously wow. a lot of them are no longer with us, having never realized that they were kidnapped as infants anyway, because of the records being burnt down. And that really resonated with me and then inspired my dissertation. <laughs> and now... I don't think there's a single World War II documentary on Netflix that we haven't seen because we just went down such a rabbit hole of watching them. That happens. I, I, and I get that. And I think if you need some research, maybe the trick is to like look at different pieces until you find the one that does grab you. Because I can't, I can't imagine like slogging through it to, you know, to get those things. I, a lot of times, like the little research, the online research is like, I need this one thing. I need to know what this waterway looks like. If I'm paddleboarding on it and I look down, what do I see? If, you know, uh, one, I looked up using EpiPens. Nobody's really recorded people actually using an EpiPen in a live situation. This bothers me, but I got enough videos. It's okay. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, cause you can't watch Pulp Fiction and go, oh, that's what it's like. That's not what it's like. So 
you do have to be careful of your sources. I've had a lot of, a lot of places where, uh, I've had writers ask questions and people like, yeah, well, I saw this on an episode of Bones and I'm like, mm, no. And Bones is, honestly, I think Bones is one of the worst because they're so accurate enough of the time. And when they're inaccurate, people don't know. So you've got to consider that source. But if you can find the thing that you like, then the other piece gets interesting. I got, I got into um, Argentinian history, again, not a history buff, because the whole mitochondrial DNA research came out of that. And I didn't know that. And now it's in a, it's in a book, you know. Do you ever find you discover really cool things in your research that just doesn't fit in your book? And you're like, need to do something with this? Don't know what to do with it? What do you mm-hmm. do with those little nuggets or big nuggets maybe? They're snowballs. They just sit there and they roll around and they become something later. So I already confess I'm that person. I was listening to NPR in my car. <laughs> when they were talking about mitochondrial genomic research, and then they talked about how it started from the disappeared in Argentina with similar situation to the one that you were talking about. And it was, it was driven by a group of grandmothers looking for their grandchildren uh, and a female genetic researcher. And together she and these Argentinian grandmothers designed this whole scientific process. So from there, because I had that, like you see, you can get that doorway in, then I started researching more of it. And it's, it's in my Nightshade Forensic Files series. And they, um, I had thought a book that was going to be the third book in the series wound up being the sixth book because it was like, oh, that, that fits in and here's a snowball. So some snowballs were really fast and some, some snowballs roll around for literally a decade. Do you ever find some snowballs occur subconsciously? Like you're just looking into something because you enjoy it. And then it's like, oh, this would work for this thing that I never thought of. Right. And sometimes you just get a whole book all of a sudden. I had one book that I wrote that the fans loved and it was a standalone. And they kept telling me it's not a standalone. And I was like, oh, that's very sweet of you, but it is. And then I was walking down the street in New York City. And to this day, I have no recollection of what I was in New York City for at the time. I've literally been a handful of times. So like, I should know. Nope. Stop dead in the street. Five people plowed into the back of me. And I suddenly had two books. I suddenly, the book, this a trilogy now. And I have no idea. Like it must've been in there because I just literally stopped dead on the street and was like, oh, that's what happens. And I didn't even have to think through the whole thing. Just suddenly two whole books in my head. So People who are trying to help me plan out my coming years, that's not fun for them, but whatever they do. Like, oh, we're also writing this because this happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes as well, if just that seed is planted in your head of, oh, there could be another book about this or about that, it's almost in your subconscious. And then that's when it can suddenly just like hit you like those five people in the back of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were happy. And honestly, if you turn around the street and go, I'm sorry, I just got two books. Like nobody understands that. That's no. not a valid excuse for clogging in New York Street. Definitely not. I'm very no. lucky we live somewhere quiet. The dog <laughs> yeah. does that all the time. I'm pretty sure the dog doesn't stop because she's got a book idea. <laughs> hey. I don't know. I mean, maybe. <laughs> she, no, she's not that creative. She's just kind of manipulative and good at getting what she wants out of people. And she's also probably doesn't not like typing anyway. So even if she has a book. She tries to type. Or tries to stop me typing. She puts her head on a uh, keyboard. My cats wrote me a chapter one night. 
I came <laughs> back and it was their their writing skills are lacking. Oh, did they need some lessons? Do they? They need some typing skills and some opposable thumbs. <laughs> How many cats have you got? Three, and an, and an older cat who's fourteen. And we thought we would put them all together, and that did not work. The older cat is not happy with the little ones, so they're segregated in the house. <laughs> is the older cat just like so over how young and excitable they are? Is it? It's I don't I don't know what it is. She just was she hissed at them. She was just like I think she was just not happy there was another cat in the house because we've got she's she's been here through several dogs and she's fine. She's eight pounds and the dogs are eighty pounds and she's fine with that. But this little tiny kitten just like threw her and yeah, she freaked the kittens out. What? It was. We were not. We were not prepared. We really <laughs> thought we were going to put all the animals together, and I'm That's sure it will be in a book someday. Probably. <laughs> yeah. My my um actually, Millie has inspired two of my books. Um, I've got a cross between a Yorkshire Terrier and a Maltese in Hollywood what happens in hollywood and i've got mm-hmm. westie in afterlife calls and i actually in early drafts of the afterlife calls series the dog was called millie because i couldn't be bothered to even name the dog and no. then i ended up just renaming the dog tilly <laughs> you didn't even go that far because yeah. having a dog is research it is i have to tell my accountant to write all my animals off one of the things that really bugs me actually when i see an animal in a book series and actually i've seen this happen with children as well but it's primarily mm. dogs and it's that people go out all day or they go on a holiday or something and then just the animal or the child disappears. And I'm like, but any responsible pet owner would find a dog sitter or like there's one book. Yeah. There's one book series I really love, but one of my pet peeves is the fact that the protagonist leaves her very small dog, like smaller than a Westie. I'm not sure like size wise, but quite small. Mm -hmm in the bathroom all day for like 8, 12, 18 hours. It's like, how are you not coming home to a pile and a puddle? You can't do that for a small dog. They have to be let out every four to five hours. Wow. Very big oversight, I think, for any responsible dog owner. Yeah, if you give a character a child or a pet, cats you can get away with a little bit more, but not that much. It's got to be part of the book. Yeah, exactly. You have to kill them and I'm not killing them. No, I won't. I did consider having a ghost dog in one of my books. And I was like, I can't do that to a dog, so we'll give them a ghost cat instead. Mm-hmm. You can tell whether I'm a dog or a cat person, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> the I just sits so. there glaring at everyone. <laughs> and then because they were a Westie, quite often the Westie just joins in. Because every mm-hmm. time you talk to someone who's had a lot of Westies, they'll go, oh, you've got a cat. Oh. <laughs> because they're a cross between basically a toddler and a cat. They're not a dog. That's wonderful. And that makes sense, though. And you write that. My dogs are big dogs. I have not written a book with a little dog in it because I, ha- I haven't done that research. Yeah, right. Because I've grown up with both, it depends on the characters for which I go for. Like one of my other characters has a golden retriever and he's literally based on the golden retriever we had when I was a teenager. And we lost him when he was only three years old. So that's kind of my way of memorializing him. Mm-hmm. He's just such a lovely dog. And he was very perceptive as well so you see him like when the character's upset he'll come up to her and he'll kind of nudge her hand and be like let me give you some love kind of thing Mm -hmm. whereas millie's a bit more aggressive and if she knows you're (laughs) upset she'll just like push you or Mm -hmm. maybe punch you because i mean she's (laughs) 10 kilos but she's strong for 10 kilos she's Mm -hmm. like she thinks she's a gladiator let's go with that that's awesome 
I love it. Yeah, I feel like my boyfriend jinxed us. He said he wanted a dog with a lot of personality. Oh, I said I wanted smart pets and I kind of regret that. (laughs) I'm currently in a a battle with my kittens and they've been moving the chairs across the floor to get to what they want to. Wow. They got past my child safety locks too, that that were on them for the kittens, not for my kids. That's impressive. It's really impressive. And I think they're both smart. And and they're working together, so I am Probably. afraid. Yeah, you're in trouble. I'm a, I am in trouble, and they're not they're not quite full grown yet. So they're a year and a half old. So they're mostly full size, but they've still got a lot of kitten personality, and they will climb anything. Just so. wait until they're even older and smarter, right? Yeah, yeah. So fingers crossed that I can stay ahead of them. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> We play a game in the house, which is, are you smarter than a kitten? And we lose. We lose that game a lot. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We played, are you smarter than a puppy? And that one, I, although I will admit, both puppies were not intelligent, but one of them is. And she got her brother to work with her. So we would, we would put them in their little crate and find it across the room later that they had figured out how to move it. So the nice thing about just having Millie is she's really lazy. <laughs> you can manipulate people to get what she wants mm-hmm. but like you know those logic puzzles you can get for dogs yes. even if there's fresh chicken in there she will <laughs> walk away because she cannot be bothered that's too funny she just can't be bothered to try and figure it out she's like nah i don't want this bad enough i'll go and lie on the sofa that's so we've true. given them all to my mom's dog who actually likes them because millie just doesn't care <laughs> can't be bothered I, yeah i've spent a lot of money on enrichment like this isn't a mess. This is kitten enrichment. Yeah, Millie would rather just sit and watch the telly all day. Doesn't care That's for anything mean. else. Except That's that and so a toy mean. box. <laughs> Back to you then. One question <laughs> we ask all our interviewees is what's one book that changed your life? Ooh. There are lots of books that I love and love to read. I'm not a rereader. So books that I reread are few and far between. Can I answer with two? I actually, I had a friend recently, um, the neuroscientist Oliver Sacks died and he'd written a handful of books and we'd read, we'd read one of his books in my honors lit class. And my friend said, he, he passed away. Did, do you remember we read this? And I went, that's why I'm a neuroscientist. I didn't realize that that book had actually changed the course of my education. But as a writer, um, Tim O'Brien, The Things They Carried. I don't know if you've read it. It's a lot of writers have. I think every writer should read it. There's a there's a piece in there called How to Tell, How to Tell a True War Story. And the book is about him and his troops in Vietnam. But as a writer, he's just a stunning writer. Um, and probably why the, the book is still so famous all these years later. But it, it has this whole piece about how if you're telling someone a story, whether you're writing it or not, you can't tell it exactly as it happened because that's not the truth. The, the truth of the story isn't in the actual actions and happenings. It's in the feelings of the story. And so if I don't tell you what it takes to get the feelings of the people who were there, then I'm not telling the true story. So in a war story, if, if you tell what happens, everybody's going to be horrified. 
But the soldiers weren't horrified because they were so inured to it by the time that it happened. So you have to tell it in this kind of funny, offbeat way so that the reader gets the real experience and the listener gets the real experience of it. And it just absolutely changed how I wanted to write. Because I think being science oriented, I was very plot oriented and very, you know, this is how it happens. And this is how these people go together. And after reading that, it was like, oh, I need to be telling true stories. And I found that a lot in the, you know, in the fire station and in doing the research, it's, it's really helped model a lot of that. And I think that's where that best day ever on the job, worst day ever on the job kind of came from is that, you know, like, if you really want to know what the truth is and how these people are, how they react to things, how they, what do they value? That's, that's where it comes from. So that book definitely changed my life. That's really interesting. I haven't heard of that book actually, but you've piqued my interest now. There's, there's a, it's all short stories. So it's great. You can just kind of read it in chunks and it's partly horrifying and partly just hysterically funny. And I, I think every writer should read it. (laughs) Was there one particular Oliver Sacks book or was it just kind of all of his stuff? I eventually read all of his stuff, but we started with the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Uh, I haven't read that. I think we own it. I think my boyfriend bought it and it's shared between our Mm -hmm. e-readers. I haven't read it, but it's always been one of those, like kind of a bucket list read that I haven't got around to yet. You know, (laughs) it's it's worth it. It's fascinating. And they're all true stories. I mean, he's a, he's a neurosurgeon. So they're wild. I love those kind of things where they're like completely bizarre, but also really true. And, and he does such a good job of not just saying like, this is bizarre, but this is bizarre because this is the mechanism in the brain that got broken that caused it. And I think and, that's the important thing, not just for neuroscience, but also for writing is understanding, yeah. yes, this is the thing that happened, but you need to know Here's, why that happened. And I think that's when I find a book lacks depth, it's usually because it's lacking that why. That's a really good point. I like that. I think I've and been I, doing it, but I haven't been thinking of it the way that you just said it. Yeah, I think it's because you already have this really in-depth research process. You don't need to consciously think about it. But when I've beta read for other people, it's something I find that is lacking. And it's something Mm. I push people on. It's something my editor pushed me on when I started writing fantasy. And sometimes if you're new to a genre or new to writing about a particular topic or theme, that's Mm. when you need to think about it harder and, like I say, do more research. And you may not have thought that you need to do that research because it's something you've not covered before. Yeah, the whole I don't know what I don't know thing is just it's petrifying and it can it can stop you in your tracks. But I do think like if you can reach out to friends and see somebody who knows people know a lot more than we think they do. And you probably have an expert closer at hand and they're pretty good about saying, like, here's where you start. Here's what people don't know. Yeah, exactly. So if our listeners want to find out more about you and your books, where can they find you? SavannahCade.com. So K-A-D-E. I'm also on Facebook. I'm in a Savannah Cade and I've got a page there and I've got a group and love to have readers hop over. The group is Savannah Soulmates. I love that name. <laughs> I tried to be catchy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been really great to find out more about your writing process. This has been awesome. Thanks so much. Did you find this episode enlightening? 
Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit like and subscribe. It helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what kind of content you want more of. And you can support us over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee a month. Join us to listen to bonus content to help you improve your craft and your mindset. Get early access to episodes and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset to join our gang. See you next time. Keep writing!